Everybody, welcome back to the Into the Light podcast with Braylon Drew and Aaron Stanger. We're so excited for you to be listening to this week's episode. We had the privilege of interviewing one of the people that I've known for a long time. I've known her for about 10 years, 11 years now. Her name is Sarah Penner, and she has quite the incredible story. We split up this interview into two parts because we ended up going for about an hour and 40 minutes. So the first part is going to be about 45-ish minutes, and then we'll release the second part next week as well. In this first episode, we're going to talk a lot about dating and relationships, especially as it pertains to high school relationships and how we can go about it in a healthy way and and learn things from, from Sarah's story and, and the different things that she's learned as well. Anyways, we hope you love this episode and please reach out to us with any comments or questions you might have for her or compliments or messages, whatever it might be. We love you all. Enjoy this episode. Briefly, just to introduce Sarah on a, in a very brief context before we tell a little story about our 11-year-old selves. <laughs> Sarah is currently a senior at SUU studying psychology. She served a mission in the Alpine German-speaking mission and has spent a lot of time in Europe and has an awesome story to tell. Before that, before we jump into Sarah, I just wanted to to share briefly a very vulnerable story myself. So Maybe even publicly apologize. <laughs> I think that would be fitting. <laughs> we'll see how deep we go here. When I was in sixth grade, me and Sarah were actually in the same class. And funny enough, we run into each other at Lagoon like two months ago at like Davis County Lagoon Day in Farmington, if any of you have ever been to Lagoon. But that was the first time I'd seen her in 10 years. Decade, yeah. Yeah, it's been at least 10 years since we're 23 now. You're almost 23. Yeah, yeah. 23. But in sixth grade, we were really good friends. In fact, we were Valentines in sixth grade. (laughs) little (laughs) We used to walk the track with each other at recess every day. No, it's a little miniature dates, you know? Yeah, let me tell yeah. you, we were very mature 11 year olds. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I just briefly want to just remember a little bit <laughs> about how badly I wanted an email. It's sixth grade because I had an iPod touch. And so I kept on asking our computer lab teacher, Mrs. Jessup, for our emails, our little dsd.go emails, the district emails, so I could email Sarah. On my iPod Touch and staying up super late. So. And we did. We emailed each other. <laughs> Aaron would go on vacation for a weekend, and I would feel like the world was over unless I could email him. So, like, what do you have to talk about at eleven? I just... oh gosh, if I could pull up those emails, right? Again, I would. I would kill to have those emails. <laughs> that would be so funny. <laughs> oh, probably really embarrassing. I'm probably glad that we don't have access to them anymore. <laughs> Anyways, regardless, we. Yeah, it was just kind of crazy, at least for me, to be able to run back into her a couple months ago. She's in a wheelchair. She was in a wheelchair. She's in crutches now. One crutch, making incredible progress. Things are looking up. That'll come later in the episode today. But yeah, it was crazy enough to run into her at Lagoon 10 years after sixth grade, after having not seen or talked to each other in forever. And then a couple weeks ago, we caught up for a second and turns out just like a lot of people that we meet, she has an amazing story that we wanted to share on this podcast. And I just met Sarah like two hours ago <laughs> and she's literally like the word that kept coming to my mind is sharp, like just super knowledge, learned, 
and I was so excited to have a conversation today about Chile. Thank you. I mean, it's very sharp in being able to eloquently go back I appreciate that. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate your view. And she came all the way from freaking Leighton? Yes. And she took raggedy bus with some ratchet people coming on. It's called a, this raggedy <laughs> bus is called a train. Yeah, it's the broken Pretty ratchet. Just looking at the people. I love everyone. Thanks. I, I'm a, I served my mission in Europe. I'm a big fan of trains. It wasn't a big deal. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Train. Or a ratchety bus. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> yeah, regardless, we're pumped. So let's let's dive right back into it. So we just want to start out, Sarah, with just a beef brief background of like where you grew up and what was your home life like? Yeah. So I was actually born in Layton, where I live now. I lived there for a few years. My dad worked with the airline industry, so we moved to Ireland for a couple of months when I was a kid. And then back to Layton, same house that we grew up in. I moved out to West Point where I met Aaron when I was seven and lived there until the summer after my freshman year of college. So we were there for about 13 years, maybe 12. I don't do math (laughs) for a while. And then my parents moved the summer before I left on my mission back to Layton. And that's where we are now. So mostly Utah, a short stint in Europe and Then I've been back in Utah. I go to Southern Utah University during the school year. So I've lived in Cedar City. And then I did a study abroad semester in Vienna, Austria. So I guess it's everywhere I've lived. And tell us a little bit about like your family life growing up. Like how many siblings did you have? How were your interactions with each other? How How close were you? That kind of thing. Yeah. So I have five siblings and there's six of us. And I'm pretty much right in the middle. I have three older sisters, two of them are twins, and then a younger sister and a younger brother. And we didn't get along very well. (laughs) We're all really close in age. So my oldest sister now is 26, and then my youngest brother is 18. So we're all tightly packed in there. And when you have five girls living in the same house, there's bound to be a little bit of drama, right? So growing up, there was a lot of arguing and like competition and we all loved our brother and he was just a little baby. And now that we're older, we're all really good friends. So that's been a really nice transition to move from petty arguing as children to now I have five built-in best friends and that's been that's been a really good crazy transition. how people mature you were already always that mature but your siblings have caught right up to yeah you, right? yeah exactly <laughs> how is like your structure in your family like were you guys pretty church-wise were you guys pretty active did you guys go to church together did you yeah gospel discussions at home so we were fairly active and by fairly i mean we were very active i guess i've been going to church every sunday ever since i can remember with my family Uh, My dad, again, works in the airline industries, and so his work schedule is kind of unpredictable, but he's always made it a priority to be home on weekends so that he can come to church with us. So watching that example growing up, I always knew that that was really important to my parents, and that kind of passed on to us. It was really important to us to be at church. We were all baptized in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when we were eight, so pretty typical Utah family there. We would have family home evenings. When we were younger, my parents made a more concentrated effort to teach spiritual things. And as we've gotten older, we just like go to the movies 
<laughs> instead. But it's been family time, right? Before my mission, when we were all still in like high school and stuff, we would get up at 6 a.m. every morning and do scripture study as a family because my sisters did like early morning classes and stuff. So it was definitely always a pretty strong influence. I don't know that I ever had like super personal one-on-one spiritual discussions with my parents Mm -hmm. or with my siblings. It was more just kind of ingrained in our culture as a family rather than like this is something really special. Let's talk about it in a personal way. But it was always present in in my childhood. So interesting. I like that. And I just lost my I was just gonna ask what I know we know you served a mission in the mm-hmm. German Alpine speaking mission. Was that always in the plans to serve a mission or how did that come it to be? It was not. It was not at all. Mm-hmm. I when I was in high school, I kind of started getting more independent and I wasn't super interested in church for a little bit. And then I came back to it. And even then, though, I was like, mission's just not for me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't I didn't have anything against them. I just knew that it wasn't what I was going to do. I was just going to do school and I was going to be happy with that. Both. So two out of three of my older sisters served missions as well. And my older sister, Rachel, came home from her mission as I was finishing my freshman year of college. And I was having a kind of hard time figuring out who I was as a freshman. Yeah. As one does. does. And she came home and she was just so different in the best way. Like she just had so much light. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want that. (laughs) I want to get in on that. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll do like another year and then I'll think about going on a mission. And me and her went to a, a YSA state conference meeting one night, a couple months after she got back from her mission. And the speaker was talking about marriage. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> I want to get married. And I heard a distinct voice in my head that said, you're not going back to school. You need to serve now. And I was like, Okay. Like it was just so direct. And I've never really received revelation like that that way before. And I couldn't argue with it. I was like, I know that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I went home that night and I canceled my school registration and I canceled my housing and I put my scholarship on hold and I started my papers. And I was in Switzerland four months later. Like, wow. It was super fast. It was super fast. So it was not in the plan, but I'm glad that it ended up being the plan because. It has made all the difference. So, I'm always so fascinated in asking, I mean, sisters, girls specifically about what queens, queens. (laughs) I've been so interested in asking queens about why they served a mission because, because it's not, it's not necessarily a commandment. Like it is for, for males or priesthood holders to, to go serve a mission. I think that's awesome. And it probably shaped a lot of who you are today. (laughs) Before we get to that, though, we want to take a step back and talk a little bit more about your formative years and specifically some experiences that happened back then. So take us back as far as you want to go. This episode is going to be a lot about mental health when mm-hmm. it comes to like depression, anxiety, and also diving a little bit into dating and the dangers and the different things that happened with that. So take us back as far as you need to go about when this story actually starts for you. Yeah. So I would say it starts just as I started high school. I went to a different high school than most of the people I grew up with. And that isolated me a little bit. 
That was her uh, first mistake going to Philippe Bolvike. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, but it was it was definitely like there were like three people from my junior high that I relatively knew that were going to the same high school as me. So we all kind of banded together. I was really big into theater in high school, and I was one of the only sophomores that made it into like the audition only class. I felt really good about that. I've always been ambitious with my maturity where I try and convince myself that I'm like more mature than I actually am. And I think that contributed to a lot of what happened to me in high school. I remember sitting in German class on the first day of school and a boy walked in carrying a briefcase, which is the weirdest thing now. But Mm -hmm. at the time I was like, ooh, unique. (laughs) A briefcase. And he walked into the classroom and I was like, wow, that's really cute. And eventually we started getting to know each other and he he decided to quit his job so that he could be in the school musical with me. And he was also into theater. He was just in a different class. And was he? he was 17 at the time and I was 14. So quite a big age gap there. I mean, at the time, right yeah, now it's like ages, yeah. whatever. But I was like 14 years old when I started high school. And I really liked him. He was super charismatic and super charming. And I was very naive. And, you know, with the exception of Aaron, it was kind of like the only (laughs) romantic attraction I ever experienced or romantic attention I'd ever had. For the record, I was way more charismatic. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't even know this guy. But But at the time, it was like, I felt like, oh, yeah, I'm in high school now. I'm like an adult i'm mature this is you get to make choices right yeah and and there's this older guy that likes me and i was really excited about that i was like wow i'm so special he was dating someone when i met him and he broke up with her so that he could date me wow and that felt special and i have always been a hopeless romantic and read way too many romance novels and watched way too many chick flicks and my little baby 14-year-old brain convinced myself that it was love and that he loved me and everything he was doing was because he loved me. And Aaron, I've talked to you a little bit about like the physicality of what happened, but something that I didn't mention yet is a lot of the trauma from that situation came at an emotional level. Looking back on it, I can see how he started isolating me from my friends and from my family and you know we had a rule in our house that we weren't allowed to date until we were 16 and he kept convincing me that my parents were crazy for that Mm -hmm. rule right that they're just trying to get in the way of us and they just don't like me and and yeah a a lot manipulative right and and I slowly you know those three friends that I had come to to high school with I didn't have a lot of friends to lose but I slowly pushed them away because he had convinced me that he was the only person that could love me. And he was convincing. It was, yeah. it was convincing. And so I think a lot of it started out emotionally. Yeah, and he had a, he had a lot more experience oh, yeah. probably with relationships yes. than he did at the time. Especially at 13, you're like so vulnerable to this yeah. man, basically. Yeah. yeah. Like he was almost an adult when I was 14 he's years almost, old. He's when almost I met graduating. Him. Could you, I mean, if you don't mind, could you give some examples of different ways that he would isolate you from your friends and family yeah. or you two together? I just think it'd be 
important and helpful for people to recognize some examples of that. Yeah, absolutely. So a big thing with with the family is he he would never, ever want to come to my house. And my parents have always been very open. You know, they want friends at their house. They want their kids to invite their friends over. They want to get to know who we're spending time with. And he didn't want to get to know my family. And that's kind of a red flag for me now because, again, like I said, my siblings are some of my favorite people on the planet now. And we're all really good friends. But he didn't want to get to know my dad. He didn't want to get to know my mom. He, he very much created this narrative of me versus them, mm-hmm. right? Us as a couple versus my parents. You know, your parents are oppressing you and they just don't want us to hang out because they don't like me. When in reality, they didn't want us to hang out because they felt bad vibes and rightly so. Mm-hmm. But he, he was very much, he very much took the idea that like the only person that you need to love you as me because I'm in love with you and you're wonderful. And he carried that to a whole new level, right? Like not even your parents can compete with the love that they have for you because I love you so much that they don't need to love you. You don't need to love them because I'm everything that you need. Do you ever tell your sisters or your relationship? So that's a really great question. A lot of our relationship was very secretive because of that, because he didn't want to get to know my family. And also because I knew that I wasn't supposed to be dating until I was 16. But I've always kind of had a rebellious streak. And that was very prominent at that point in my life where I was like, well, I'm going to do what I want and I want to be with him. And so I think, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it was secretive. We ended up kissing. I ended up having my first kiss when I was 15 like six months before my 16th birthday and I was riding that high for a while right like physical intimacy is is very attractive and then I started feeling really guilty about it and I remember I I came home my, my sister was a senior at the time and I was a sophomore and she was driving me home and I told her like hey I kissed him and and I'm starting to feel really guilty about it And I think a lot of that was because I had been secretive to my parents. But I think part of it was also that I felt a lot of shame for having romantic and sexual feelings Mm -hmm. at such an early age. I mean, it's not really that early, but, you know. And she was like, "Okay, well, I think you probably need to tell mom. And talking to Rachel, she's the same one that convinced me to go on a mission where her influence helped me go on a mission. She she could tell that something was wrong, right, that there was some sketchy stuff going on. And and we talked about it and she's like, honestly, Sarah, I think I think it would be good for you to take a step back from him and and take a break. And she had me fully convinced that that was what needed to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I went home and I told my mom and she was a little mad, but she could tell how upset I was about it. And I back to the handwritten notes thing, I guess (laughs) I wrote him a whole note, a whole letter. And I said, Hey, like, this is how I feel about you. And I really, really like you. But like, I really feel like I'm not ready for something like this right now. And we needed to take a step back. And I gave it to him and I watched him read it. And he was like, really angry about it, like really upset. And I really cared about him at the time. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe we like don't need to stop things completely, but can we at least like wait to kiss again until I turn 16? And he was like, yeah, sure. That's fine. And that was in May. I turned 16 in September. And over that summer, it was just constant pressure from him. Mm -hmm. 
Like I would set a boundary and he would be like, yeah, of course, whatever makes you comfortable. And then subtly try to undermine it. Mm, right. Yeah. And we never kissed again that summer, but it got really close. And not because of me, not because I wanted it, because I was pretty firm in, in my goal of yeah. not kissing him until I turned 16. And then we were at a friend's house the night before I turned 16 and he kissed me the night before I turned 16. And like, it doesn't feel like that big of a deal because it was just like literally three hours difference. But it felt like a really big deal to me. Yeah. Because yeah. you had a boundary. Yeah. And it was expressed. Yeah. Very clearly. clearly yeah. yeah. And he didn't respect it. And he didn't respect it. But again, I have this narrative going in my head that's been instilled by him now. Oh, well, he just kissed me because he loves me so much. Mm. And he couldn't wait any longer. Yeah. Because he loves me so much. Uh, he was my first date when I turned 16. He took me to homecoming. And I remember we were sitting outside the gym making out. And I heard Footloose come on inside the gym. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to go dance. Do you want to go dance? And he's like, no, I think we should stay here for a little bit. Mm, Yankees. And just kept kissing me. <laughs> and again, like looking back, I was like, man, that's really messed up. Like, I, I just wanted to go dance. And I just wanted to have fun at my first high school dance and on my first date. And he just wanted the physical. Right. And it was. I mean, at the time, again, I just I justified it. It was he loves me so much. and. This is how he shows me he loves me. Yeah. So that was in October and November is when things really started going down. We were in a theater class with another girl and I really liked her. We had been friends for a really long time. And he came up to me at school one day and he said, Sarah, I need to tell you something. And I said, OK. And he said, I need you to know that this girl is spreading rumors that we kissed last night. And I need you to know that it's not true. And I was like, how dare she? Like, how dare she do that? Like, I knew that she liked him, but I was like, how dare she go that far? And so then we spent a couple weeks, like, shooting eyes at each other and, like, avoiding each other in the hallways. And eventually, I just got really sick of it. And I was yeah. like, I just, like, we used to be friends and I'm really sick of this tension. And so I texted her. And I don't know if this was the most mature thing that I've ever done, but I essentially said like, hey, I really hate what's happening between us. I'm really sorry that he likes me and that he doesn't like you. I know how that feels, but I'm really sick of this. Can we just be friends again? And she texted me back and said, did he tell you everything? And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> they had been dating since the summer. Oh, my God. <laughs> and... He told her that I was okay with it. And I don't understand why she would be okay with that. But I obviously wasn't okay with it. So found yourself a stand-up guy. Literally. It was it was pretty bad. So I texted him and essentially said, you know, like we're done. And he sent me back all these nasty things like, oh, you'll come back and and you know, you can't last long without me and like basic textbook narcissistic stuff. And he was right. Unfortunately, I got to school a week later and he asked if we could talk and he pulled me into the side hallway and just started sobbing. And he was like, Sarah, I'm so sorry. Like, I care about you so much and it was a mistake and it didn't mean anything. And I'm so sorry. Can we please try again? And I think a part of me knew that it was a bad idea, but I missed him. 
because I, at this point, was addicted to him, you know, mm-hmm. like I was addicted to the attention and, and the physical the intimacy yeah. and the affection. And, and so I, I said, okay, this was December. I said, okay, but I think once we get back to school after Christmas break, we should take a break. We should stop talking for a little bit. Did you feel he was like sincerely apologetic or was it I think manipulation I, as well? I think I wanted him to be. Okay. But You're I like think convince yourself. Yeah. I think it was manipulation. But I think I wanted him to be sorry. You know, I wanted that movie moment of, yeah, the guy screws up, but then he comes to you sobbing and yeah. tells you. He, you're his whole world, and and then you're in love again. You know, like I yep. was like, oh yeah, my oh. life is a movie. My life is not a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it could be though. It's <laughs> made into one. Uh, and so, we kind of had like a like a time limit then, because I was like, well, after I get back from Christmas break, like I don't know that I want to keep doing this anymore. And I don't know if I convinced myself that that was okay for us to date for like two more weeks and then end things, or if he convinced me. But regardless, that was the deal. And then we started spending a lot more time with each other and spending time with each other when I told my parents I was somewhere else. And they thought I still wasn't talking to him because they knew about him cheating on me and everything. And eventually we were out one night and things were getting pretty heavy. And they there came a point where I like gave him permission to do certain things. And then he passed that point without permission without consent and into territory that I knew nothing about because I was 15 years old, 16, I guess at this point, because the last health class I had taken was in the eighth grade and it was abstinence only. Yeah. I I didn't know what he was doing. And so I didn't know how to say, wait, I don't I don't know what's going on. And when you're in that moment and and it's happening scary in real time. Yeah. yeah. Like it's it's really scary. And then in addition to that, I was totally on the high of physical affection, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I knew I didn't know what was happening and I wasn't sure if I was okay with that, but I knew that I wanted him to kiss me and I knew that I wanted to keep that up. And so we hung out for about a week or so more and it happened every time we were together. And I want to say it happened four or five times. Okay. And I didn't understand again, like what it was or what happened to me or or what he was doing. But I was very much addicted to being with him and being near him. And I didn't know how to break out. Right. Yeah. And even just the the physical element of it, like there's an addiction aspect to that, too, yeah. because, I mean, we're meant to be sexual beings. And right. When that happens at such a young age, even if you don't know what's going on, you know it feels like Good. something you want to have happen again. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I remember we went to hang out one day and I told my parents I was at work. And if anyone ever asks me, like, why I believe in God and why I believe that he is good, this is the story that I'll tell them. Because I wasn't happy with what was happening. And... But I didn't know how to get out of it. Like, mm-hmm. I was in so deep that, like, there was no way I was going to be able to, like, go up to my parents and be like, hey, <laughs> this happened to me. You know, like, there was no way I was going to be able to do that on my own. Mm-hmm. And I told my parents I was at work, but I was at his house. And my parents were out Christmas shopping. And my they were in a hurry, right? Like, they had to come home for something. And my dad got the distinct impression to drive home a different way than they normally do. 
like to drive home the long way. And my mom was driving and he was like, Katie, we have to go a different way. And she was like, well, I don't know why we would do that. Like, we have to get home. And my dad was like, no, like we I don't know what it is, but we have to drive home differently. And they ended up in their car right behind my car. Mm. And I wasn't where I said I was. And that was the floodgates opening, right? We pulled into the garage at the same time and I put on a false, hey, how are you guys? You know, and my dad got out of the car and looked at me and said, Sarah, where were you? And I was like, I told you I was at work. And he's like, no, we saw you. Where were you? And that was my opening, right? That was the chance for me to be able to say, I really like kissing and I don't know what's wrong with me. And this is what happened to me. And I need help. Yeah. And like at the time, I very much felt like I didn't deserve to be helped. Mm hmm. And because you were disobeying your because parents. I was disobeying my parents because I was disobeying God. And he helped me anyway. And he told my dad to drive home differently. And I like he didn't give me the courage to save myself mm -hmm. because I don't think I physically could have just with my emotional maturity at the time. But he used my father. To help me and mm -hmm. to save me and. In a way that you did not want. In a way that, oh, I, I was really mad that <laughs> I was having this conversation, right? But it was exactly what needed to happen because if, if things had gone on much longer, it would have been so much worse. How, I have a question, like, because that's, that's an amazing story and I, I feel like that's, that is the character of our Heavenly Father to a T. It doesn't matter how far you've gone, he's always going to find a way to wake you up somehow, even if you don't necessarily want to be woken up or right. if you don't feel ready to be. But I want to ask, like going back before that happened, how did all these experiences, these sexual experiences when you're 15, 14, 15, 16, mm -hmm. how did that affect your own self-worth? Yeah. How did that affect your view of yourself? Honestly, uh, I've never had great self-esteem. Actually, that's not true. I've been working on this in therapy. Uh, like when I when I knew you in sixth grade, for example, I knew who I was like I was I mean, I didn't know a lot, but I knew who I was. Right. And and I really felt like the fact that I started having such negative, manipulative sexual experiences at such a developmental age, that changed everything. Yeah. And I have struggled with chronically low self-esteem since then. And I'm I'm still struggling with it like seven years later. Right. Like having a really long time ago. But it it just, like, I don't know, the, the combination of, of feeling like he was the only person that could love me and also feeling like an object, mm -hmm. like I was only there because he liked kissing me. I, I could count on one hand the amount of times we had, like, a deep, productive conversation. Like actual connection. Yeah. Like looking back on it. Which I is, which is so talk. contradictory that he's, he's manipulate, manipulating you to a sense where you feel like he's the only one that truly loves you. Yeah. But he doesn't know anything in about actuality, me. In actuality, yeah. That's not what love is. Right. And whether he knew that or not doesn't really matter. Right. Like you're he, too young to realize. Exactly. I mean, I was, I was 15, right? Like he he knew what my body looked like, but he didn't know anything about me. Mm -hmm. He didn't know anything about what I cared about. He just completely sucked me into him, you know? And I, I was so young and so naive and so unaware and uneducated that it was really easy for me to fall into that. Yeah, like really easy. I think two people, it's it's kind of like a common thing, but because you were boyfriend and girlfriend and because you were dating, mm -hmm. that automatically is consent. And yeah, 
it's not that way at all because right. in your mind you're like this is happening to me it mm -hmm. feels good how it's happening to me but i don't want this to happen to me right i feel gross when it happens to me or i don't i don't like it mm -hmm. and i i'm not necessarily initiating initiating it but if i say no in the moment you're not going to want to talk to me again or you're not going to want to You're not going to love again. me anymore. You're, yeah, you're not And you're the only person that who loves, loves me cuz you you made me believe that yeah. for so long. Yeah, exactly. Something that has completely Yikes. changed the way that I view consent is I I heard something about consent needing to be not only enthusiastic but also informed. Yeah. 100% informed. For sure. And and whether or not enthusiasm was there in my body language in the moment, I had zero information. I was not informed at all. And therefore, consent was not there. Yeah. And it was not granted. And I did not give consent. Mm -hmm. And it's given me a really long, I mean, it's taken me a really long time to, like, believe that. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, oh, well, I let it get to a certain point. Oh, well, I wanted For it. Sure. Yeah. Oh, well, it felt good. And you convince yourself that it was your right. idea. But, like, the definition of consent is enthusiastic and informed. Mm -hmm. And I was not informed. And, and I will die on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you convince yourself as well that the way that you feel love is through that physical right. affection. Like I hadn't felt it romantically in any other way from anyone. Yeah. And you got this 17-year-old who's... Well, and I, I, I talked to his ex-girlfriend that he broke up with me. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. I remember the day after... Christmas break. The timing actually ended up really well. My my parents found out about it two days before Christmas. So Christmas is hard. <laughs> but then I had two weeks without seeing him. You know, I had two weeks to completely disconnect. They took my phone. They deleted all my social media. They were like, you are not talking to this man ever Go again. Go Sarah's parents. <laughs> They're amazing. They were great. And I had time to break the addiction and to mourn and to grieve what had happened to me without any sort of withdrawals or... And I... I keep using the word addiction because it really felt that way, yeah. right? Like, like neurologically, my brain was hooked on the attention he was giving me. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to, to cut cold turkey, right, for two weeks without any contact. And that was the best thing that ever could have happened to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whether it was voluntary or not, right. it's yeah. probably the best thing. But I, I talked to his ex when I got back to school. She had heard what happened and she walked up to the, me in the hallway and just threw her arms around me and gave me the biggest hug. She said, I, I heard you and aren't together anymore. I'm really sorry. And I said, I'm not. Huh. And I was kind of like a like a leaky faucet at that point in my life. I would tell everybody who would listen that something bad had happened to me. And I didn't have the vocabulary to say, you know, like I was sexually assaulted or I was date raped or I was sexually abused. Like I didn't have that vocabulary. I didn't really connect the dots until much later. For sure. But I would tell everybody <laughs> that he did something bad and we weren't together anymore and it was his fault. Right. So I told her a little bit about what happened, and she shared a little bit about how he would push her physical boundaries as well. I was knew it. <laughs> I knew it the second you brought that other girl up. And and just having that, like, solidarity and knowing that I wasn't the only person that had experienced that from him specifically. Because she knows how he does it. Right. And, yeah. I wasn't crazy, you know? Yeah, and, you and, weren't the only one thinking the same thing. And Everybody else, like we were in theater together, right? And we had a very tight knit friend group that we were all a part of. Everybody else was still his friend. Mm -hmm. And I remember like specifically talking to one of our friends saying, this is what he did. This is what happened to me. 
And this friend said, oh, well, I'm really sorry that happened to you, but he's never done anything to me. And then they all stayed as friends. Yeah. And I felt like I was crazy Mm -hmm. (laughs) because nobody else was reacting the way that I was. And then I talked to her and it gave me so much peace. Mm -hmm. And and I felt like I wasn't going insane, which was a gift at the time. Something I've learned about perpetrators, I don't know if that's a good word to use, is that they have more than one victim and that victim is usually pretty close to you either in age or in closeness Mm -hmm. factor relationship wise right and i think that that never like never comes across your mind that it could happen to somebody else because it feels so isolating so isolating because he isolates you specifically yeah dang bro hi and i think there's something to be said i mean we all have opinions about sexual education, but I think For even sure. from from his point of view, I'm sure the things that he learned about sex did not come from a reliable source. Yeah, or no. I just I just look back and think of every single person. I mean, 99% right. of guys that I've talked to that are my age now have gone through some some form of pornography addiction mm-hmm. at some point in their life, and when you're that when you're that young. Just like you were talking about, it's believable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you feel like this is what connection is. This is like, what love is. Yeah. Yeah. This 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 rape type of sex or sexual activity is how I express my love to someone else, which is so backwards. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get out of it? Your parents, did they know the extent that he sexually abused you? Or like what did your parents know from the point after Christmas break? They, it was hard because I didn't really understand it. Okay. Until years later. Yeah. Right? So it was very much, and I 100% support the way that my parents handled this because I don't know how I would have handled it. It was very much treated more as me breaking the law of chastity and him being mean than mm-hmm. someone sexually assaulting me. Yeah. And it's also because you didn't really understand Because I didn't yourself. really understand it myself, yeah. right. So they really only knew, like, the physical acts that had taken place. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, describing it to them and feeling absolutely sick to my stomach, which made me feel like I did something wrong. Exactly. And my dad that night, it was like two nights before Christmas, and our bishop was having a ward party or a family party or something. And my dad texted him and said, hey, can you meet with Sarah? And, you know, like, it was... Because I broke the law of chastity, but also we had a really amazing bishop at the time. And he came to the church that night and met with me and I was able to talk to him. And he didn't take away my temple recommend and he didn't tell me that I had done anything wrong. We just talked about getting better and Mm -hmm. talked about having support. And I met with him every week for a couple months just to make sure that I wasn't talking to him anymore. The, The guy that you know, my perpetrator and that I was feeling okay. And I think his reaction to that was was really beneficial for me as well. Yeah. What was the idea or, I mean, do you now feel like there was some type of power that helped in that? I don't know if that really makes sense. But like more of the fact that you went to a priesthood leader, how do you think that kind of helped in your healing process or did it? And, and I guess in the way that he handled it. Yeah, for sure. I think the way that he handled it definitely helped. I think I would have gone into full-blown crisis mode. (laughs) For sure. If 
if I had continued to feel like I had done something wrong on the surface. You know, I think for a long time inside, I felt that way. And we can get into that a little bit later about how I felt like I was finally alleviated from that. But like, I, I remember feeling peace after talking to him mm-hmm. the first time. And this was after literally the worst day of my life. And I felt okay. Yeah. And and I felt like things were going to be okay. And then I woke up the next morning and I was like, my life is literally ending. But <laughs> then I would talk to him again and I would feel okay for a second, yeah. you know. So. I think it's really cool to hear like the emotional roller coaster you've been on because like at first you were like, there is no absolute way that I can get out of this. Like I'm so isolated. I feel so unacknowledged as a human being in general. And then you go from, I just, I feel this peace. I feel like everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out. You know, like this isn't the end of Sarah or who I am. Yeah. That's really cool. How do you feel like, at least when you were going through it, how did you feel about your own worthiness compared to when you first talked to your parents and your bishop? I think my, you know, like recognizing my worth, that journey has taken a lot longer. For sure. Than just the the weeks or the months immediately following the incident. And why do you think that is? I've always been curious to know. I think I, so I'm studying psychology, right? And trauma is psychologically difficult to interpret. And it's difficult to really understand what it is. Because your tr- your brain is trying to protect you, right? So it blurs a lot of things and it hides a lot of things and it tucks things behind corners. And and so I think the worth piece was so, you know, it wasn't just impacted by the single physical event where I was date raped, right? It was impacted from when I met him when I was 14 years old. And so I had been, I'd been, my worth had been degraded for two years of my life. Yeah. And so it took a lot longer to kind of rebuild that. And I think I also needed to recognize what happened to me for what it was before I could start rebuilding that worth. And that piece didn't come until years after. For sure. Wow. That's powerful right there. It's not going to come going to a couple therapy sessions or going to therapy for two years. You know, it's going to be a lifelong journey of this acceptance of yourself and who you are. Well, I didn't. That's interesting. I didn't start like actual treatment for it in terms of mental health assistance and counseling until a couple years after yeah. the incident as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty common. And recovery is just such a process no matter what mental health struggles you're going through, yeah. much less that amount of physical trauma mm-hmm. Dang. as well. I was going to ask, I asked our guest Laura in episode six about this, but I mean, we grew up, you grew up in a very active household in the church and we've all grown up like singing primary songs like I am a child of God mm-hmm. and Heavenly Father loves me. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you actually believed those things when you were going through it? Or when did that, if not, when did that belief start to take root and you actually started to feel that? Or understand it. A great question. I don't know how to answer that. I think, I mean, like I said, I, I feel like my my self-esteem and my, like, view of myself was fundamentally damaged from a very developmental age right and so i feel like sometimes that's still a battle that i fight like seven years later like Mm -hmm. honestly believing that my savior does love me and that i am his child you know i think i think there were moments in the recovery where i felt that really powerfully 
but it's hard for me to pinpoint a point in my life ever where I felt that consistently. And I think that is why faith is so important to me because you just got to keep faking it until you make it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you got to keep trying to believe and, and trying to convince yourself until it sticks for a second and then life hits again and that goes away and then you try again. You know, I think yeah. that's a continuous cycle for me. Well, just from your story, it sounds like, I mean, the hard times, there there was normally typically like an uptime and yeah. that's that's when the atonement was there inaccessible. Absolutely. Like your parents running into you at the stoplight, like that was the atonement. That was Literally. Christ stepping in and saying, Sarah needs help and this is how I'm going to help her. Even though she didn't specifically ask in this way or needed this, you know, it was it was extended and right. it was help in that well, way. And, and looking back on it, I think there were multiple moments when we were dating where I felt like the Savior was trying to reach out to me. For sure. And I ignored it because I was 15 <laughs> and naive and wanted excitement and adventure. And and I just am so grateful that like he knew my nature enough to know that I wasn't going to seek help myself. Yeah. And so he sent it to me in the form of another person mm -hmm. because that's the only way that I would have accepted it. He also know? knew the desires of your hearts better yeah. than you did. Yeah. yeah. And, but but he still, like, even though the desires of my hearts were so whack, mm -hmm. like, they were so out of there, he was like, I still love you and you still deserve saving and you still deserve grace and you still deserve healing. So. Dang. That's matter, incredible. No That's really powerful. Yeah, I, I love that. So tell us a little bit more about, I guess, the process post when it all came out. Tell about yeah. your recovery a little yeah. bit past that. Okay. Sorry to leave y'all on that cliffhanger of a question. That was the end of part one. And we hope you can join us for part two coming out next Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. We'll see y'all there.